I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi everyone, welcome to Snow's History. I'm just standing on the edge of the River Thames. You can probably hear it lapping on the stones below me. I've got Southwark Cathedral across the Thames from me now. I've got the replica of the Golden Hind, the first British, first English ship to circumnavigate the globe in the 1570s under Sir Francis Drake. He was knighted on his return. Looking east, I've got HMS Belfast that saw service on D-Day and in the Korean War, which began 70 years ago this year and beyond that, Tower Bridge. London Bridge right next to me. The reason that London exists, this was the furthest point down river on the Thames that could be bridged by the Romans. So they put the bridge here and then the settlement grew up around it. And then just under one of the arches of the bridge, I can see the Tower of London there. The walls built by the Plantagenets around the central white keep, the White Tower of William I, William the Conqueror. And I'm, uh, I'm looking down here because I'm mudlarking everybody. I'm making a, a, a film for History Hit TV. We're looking for archaeology on the foreshore. And we found a lot, I've got to say. So check out the documentary on History Hit TV when it goes out. Remember, if you're listening to this, you can use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, to see what we found. One of the best things we found was a, a, a Georgian coin from the 1750s. Very cool. Just under our feet as we walked on the on the beach. Very, very cool indeed. So go and use the code POD6, check out History Hit TV. Uh, this podcast does not have anything to do with mudlarking. This podcast is the remarkable story of the forgotten battle at the end of the Second World War. 75 years ago, there was a, a group of Georgians who'd been in the Red Army, fighting for, for the USSR in the Red Army. They'd been given the choice to starve or fight in the Wehrmacht, in the German Army. They'd reluctantly chosen to fight in the German Army. In the dying days of the war, they rose up and massacred their German overlords, for want of a better word. And Hitler ordered a savage counterattack. And there was brutal fighting on this Dutch island of Tekel, spelt Texel, uh, in, uh, in the spring of 1945. And as you'll hear, with tragic consequences. So I talked to the historian Eric Lee, who uncovered this story and helped to recreate the Night of the Bayonets and the Georgian Legion's uprising. Enjoy. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. So tell me, I, this is again one of those unknown stories. I did not know anything about the Texel. Right. And I'm, I'm going to correct you now and say it is not Texel, which is how it's written. Yeah. T-E-X-E-L. They pronounce it Tessel. Okay. And the locals will tell you it's because X means S-S. I suspect that's not the last time you'll correct me in this podcast. No, I'll correct you tons of times. Uh, okay, let's set the scene before we tell people what happened. It's the dying days of the Second World War. It's the final month. Final month. We're a month away from the end of the war. Holland has been largely liberated? Half of it. Only half of it? Yeah. 
The Allied armies in Holland have only one purpose at this point in the war, is to get to the German border as quickly as possible and cross into Germany. The, the German armies in the Netherlands are not really fighting very hard against them. They're trying to cross the border. It's a race toward Berlin. So the Allied armies are moving toward the east of the country very quickly, many Canadians and the British. That's, that's their job. So they're dashing through Arnhem and other places trying to get into Germany as quickly as possible. And they're ignoring Western Holland, which is Western Netherlands, which is remaining in the hands of the, of the, of the Germans. And they were left there almost to the last days of the war. They were left there to the last days of the war and beyond. That's the story of the Tesla uprising. It lasts beyond the end of the war. So what happens? What's the story of the uprising? Yeah. Why it, does it begin? Well, it's a long story, but it begins with this, um, a battalion of Georgian soldiers, Soviet Georgian soldiers who had been in the Red Army, captured in the early days of the war, put in POW camps, given a choice of starve or fight, who agreed in their hundreds to join the German army. They became what's known as the Georgian Legion, a totally unreliable force. When in the Soviet Union and Poland, they would routinely defect to the others, back to the Soviet lines. Um, Hitler himself said they were unreliable. He doesn't trust Georgians. He wants Muslim soldiers, not Georgian soldiers. They're not, they're not reliable. Um, and they wind up on, on this island off the coast of the Netherlands called Tessel. So it's the largest of the Wadden Islands. There's a string of islands along the Dutch coast. And this island is part of the Atlantic Wall. It's totally fortified. There are literally hundreds of small bunkers across it, airfields, naval batteries. It, and they're, they're sent there to basically sit out and wait till the end of the war. But on April 5th, this is literally a month before the war ends in the Netherlands, um, their, their commander, Major Klaus Breitner, receives an order from high on up, take half of your Georgians, and there's like, um, like 800 Georgians, take half of them tomorrow morning, get on the ferry, get them over to Arnhem, because Arnhem is about to be retaken by the Allies. You know, it it sort, of, sort of was taken in Market Garden, and now it's going to be really taken for good. Get them over there, they won't have to defend Arnhem. These Georgians have never actually fought for the Germans. They haven't gone to combat against the British army. Their job has been uh, anti-partisan actions in the Eastern Front and the Western Front. They've been kind of guarding things. They haven't really done much. So they don't want to go against the British army and they have long um, laid plans to rebel that go back a year or more. They've been plotting and scheming and talking to the Dutch resistance, especially the Dutch Communist Party and planning a rebellion. So on April 5th, when the order comes, you guys have to go to the mainland to fight. They're thinking, no, we, we don't want to do that. That's when they decide to rebel. Wow. And so they have German officers, do they? They have German officers. So it's, it's Georgian soldiers, German officers, and a handful of the Georgians become officers. So one of them is a, is a leutnant named Shalva Doladze. He was a, like a captain in the, in the Soviet Air Force. He was actually a commander of a, a number of planes, whatever you'd call it, in the Soviet Air Force, who was shot down in 1942, captured. He's the leader of the Georgians, the highest ranking Georgian officer. All the higher officers are German. And there are Germans with them, right? They're sharing barracks with hundreds of Germans intermingled with the Georgians. So the Georgian plan, they call this Operation Day of Birth. But my Georgian friends tell me it's birthday, not day of birth, birthday. Anyway, the Dutch always say it's day of birth because it sounds more exotic. They decide at one o'clock in the morning, they only find out about this like late in the afternoon. They meet in the evening in a, in a wood, a secret, like, you know, you know whatever you call it, in the middle of a wood. There's very small woods on, on um, Tessel. They meet there and they decide we'll launch Operation Day of Birth at one o'clock in the morning and we'll do it using bayonets, razors, which they call shaving knives, and, and our blades, whatever knives we have, and we'll slash the throats of as many Germans as we can silently to start the operation. So they kill an estimated 400 Germans in their what? beds, in the barracks. Oh. 400, which is probably more than the Dutch resistance killed in the entire war. They've killed in, in just literally an hour. That's how it begins. 
Wow. Yeah. Is the alarm is the, is the alarm raised at some It point? is raised because some of them have to have to shoot and some shooting begins and the alarm is raised. And one of the biggest problems is they have to kill Major Breitner. He's the commander of the battalion. He's the guy who was the direct line to Berlin. And Major Breitner is not in the barracks. Major Breitner, according to all the accounts, especially the Dutch, he's with his mistress. And they will take you sure. on the island and show you that's the house where Breitner was with his mistress that night. In Breitner's own account, no, 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 he had some medical problems and he had to be some, you know, but sure, he, was, sure. he was with the mistress. He survives. Darn it. He survives and he sneaks away in the cover of darkness when he realizes he has all the shooting to raise the alarm. And how many loyal German troops do they have on the island? Um, it's a few hundred of them. One of the problems is there's two types of Germans on the island. There are the German soldiers of the Wehrmacht um, who are with the Georgians. They're, they're being slaughtered wholesale. Then there are Germans who are part of the, of the Navy. The batteries are under the control of the Navy. So while the Georgians can move about freely anywhere on the island, they can't get into these two naval batteries. The, the sentries won't let them pass. And it's all mined and, and barbed wire around them, very tight security, because they don't, they don't trust the Georgians at all. So the two batteries remain in German hands, even as the, the Georgians are taking over the rest of the island. They're taking over the airfield and the, the lighthouse and the main town and the main German bunker complex. They all fall to the Georgians, but not the two batteries. Hmm. And is there a fight? The, the fight begins immediately. Now, at first, for the first few hours until lunchtime, the Georgians are winning. And they, they announce to the Dutch, the islands have been liberated. Just like lots of other parts of the Netherlands, we can now all celebrate and all the flags come out. I don't know how they do this in Second World, you probably know more than I do. How all these people have flags hidden away and take them out in the victory day, I don't know. But they, and Soviet flags, they all have, there's like red flags and Dutch flags flying in the streets. They're all celebrating and Lolodze issues an order that all the Dutch men who are, you know, fit to fight are report to him in the, in the main town, Denburg. So a lot of them show up and they start passing out weapons to them and tell the, you know, the Dutch, you'll go there, you'll go there. And they organize them, we're going to just like do the mopping up. But meanwhile, Breitner sent a message to Hitler, to the Fuhrer bunker. And this is, remember, this is April 6th. Hitler is now below ground. The Soviets are, in two weeks, launching the, the, the final offensive against Berlin. And from there, he gets this message saying that Tesla has fallen, the Georgians have risen up, and he gives an order to exterminate all the Georgians there at any cost. Which he did a lot of those kinds of things in the last days of the war. It's kind of a, you think you really want to use your troops for that purpose? Is it that important to you to recapture this island? But he was infuriated that Georgians who had sworn an oath of loyalty to the Fuhrer and were wearing uniforms of the Wehrmacht had done this. So he, he issues orders to do whatever necessary. And the first thing that's done is these naval batteries turn their guns inland. These are guns that were designed to sh you know, shoot at allied battleships, are turned inland to pummel the main town and all the farms and anyth anywhere they think there's people with deadly accuracy, and they kill large numbers of Dutch people on the very first day, including children, children who had gone to the island seeking safety, because it was a relatively safe place. This is how it begins. The German counterattack begins, they begin landing troops, and from then on it's a story of a slow, steady German advance across the island, inch by inch, mopping up, killing every Georgian they can find. Wow. Yeah, against ferocious Georgian resistance, I might add. So on the very western edge of Europe, a kind of arguably rogue element of the Red Army, sort of, is engaged in a house-to-house -house fight with the Wehrmacht in the last days of the war. Yep. And the Georgians have been pretending that they're not very good at being soldiers. And some of the Dutch people tell stories about them pretending like not know how to use guns, but actually they're all sharpshooters. And the Germans are extremely cautious because if they're not, don't handle it right, a lot of Germans die in the fighting. So the Germans will like besiege a house and they, they realize they don't want to get in a shooting battle because they'll be wiped out. 
So they set the houses on fire, they use flamethrowers. When they actually capture Georgians alive, which they do on some occasions, Georgians surrender, they make them strip off their uniforms, because they're not allowed to wear the uniform of the Wehrmacht, and then they shoot them. They take no prisoners at all. Nor do the Georgians take any prisoners at all. How many people are involved in the fighting at, the, at its peak? Um, at its peak, I would say 2,000 wow. more. Not that many more. I mean, in the end, a bit over 500 Georgians die, and we don't know the number of Germans, because Germans keep taking their corpses off the island in ferries, so there's no, we don't know exactly, but we know it's many more than Georgians. So 1,000, 2,000 Germans have died there. But all the Georgians who died, their bodies remain there, so we know exactly how many Georgians died. And does it come to an end with the end of the war? Or? This is the extraordinary thing about it, it never ends. The, the Georgians, of course, are militarily defeated early on, and they, they try to hold on to their strategic assets, like the airfield, because they're desperate that the British will arrive, and they want the planes to be able to land. This is their, their vision of how it's going to work out. And, but they're retreating northwards, and their last stand is in the lighthouse, which is still standing on the northern part of Tessel. And there the Germans arrive on Hitler's birthday, April 20th, with a unit of the Hermann Goering division, and their sappers are sent in with tons of explosives, and flamethrowers, and they, they try to burn the Georgians out, and they kill all of them except for about two. They, they're hunting them down. And it's still over 200 survive. They're hiding in the dunes, they're hiding in the, in the ditches, in the farms. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And why don't the British or the Canadians intervene when they find out what's going on? Here's the question. I mean, the first thought would be, well, they don't know what's going on, right? Which is what the Georgians assumed. And at one point, four Georgians early on get in a boat with a bunch of Dutch people and sneak away at night and come to England to inform the British, make sure the British will know. And most of the stories of this battle, the handful of stories that have been written, mentions, but no one says what happened when they arrived in Britain. So I was reading about, well, what did happen to people who arrived in Britain this way? And they were taken off to a particular Kempton Park race course, I think, which is where they would interrogate them. And I found the interrogation records of these Georgians. They give a very detailed account. I heard the English translation, the English version, the interrogators had written. 
They give a very detailed account of the situation, about their rebellion, about the German deployment, about what was needed, which was bombing. They wanted the RAF just to intervene quickly and show the Germans that the war was over for them. Why didn't the British go in? Um, I think because, as with many other things, you know, why didn't they bomb Auschwitz? You know, why didn't they do a lot of things? Because they, their drive was to defeat the Germans as quickly as possible. And Tessel is not on the road to Berlin. It would have meant diverting forces who were desperately needed for the final battles. So the British did nothing. The other thing we know now, because it's all in the National Archives here, is every message the Germans sent about the uprising on Tessel from the very first night was picked up by the British, decrypted at Bletchley Park, and the records are there. You can read them each day, what the Germans were reporting back to Berlin. The British knew within a few hours what was happening. They knew and they did not intervene. Uh, and, and, and the civilian, the island was totally badly damaged, wasn't it? Yes, well, they were burning farms after another, and they were, Germans were also, not just like randomly, you could argue, oh, well, you know, accidents happen in war, they didn't really tend to kill Dutch people, but they really did. And, and like on the first day of the fighting, they rounded up 14 Dutch men in the main town, Denborg, put them in a lorry, began driving away, four of the men jumped out, somehow. The other 10 stayed in the lorry, they put them in another part of the island, and executed them. Why? They thought they were sympathetic to the Allies, which of course everyone was but they accused them of collaborating with these terrible Georgians. So the Germans were, were killing uh, in wholesale. And also the, their, the, the batteries and the shelling, and it was, it was indiscriminate because they knew the Georgians could have been anywhere, so they would just burn down farms. And so let's come back to the, is it the final stand at the lighthouse? That's the final stand on April 20th, but the fight continues after that. It's become now, ironically, the Georgians have a whole discussion about this strategy, it becomes partisan warfare. Originally, they imagined this battle as being a more conventional battle. They realized it was going to be a, a war of attrition by this point, certainly after April 20th. So they're sniping at the Germans. And the Germans are you know, sneaking up on houses and setting fire to them, hoping Georgians will come running out. And they're doing a lot of that. But there are hundreds of Georgians are still there hiding, and the Dutch people are giving them food, and they're baking extra loaves for them. There's a lot of Dutch help for that. And the war ends in the Netherlands on May 5th, three days before VE Day. Everyone knows about this. The radios come on and so on. Neither side backs down. The Germans will not put their weapons down. They're patrolling. They're terrified someone's going to shoot at them, especially now. The Georgians are terrified of the Germans because they're still heavily armed and seeking revenge. And they keep shooting at each other. And their deaths right up until May 20th, 15 days after the Germans surrendered the Netherlands, and 12 days after V-Day, when a Canadian unit, the Royal Canadian Artillery, a survey regiment, lands on the island. They'd been ordered to remove the Germans. And they didn't know what was going on. No one had told them what they would find there. And their, their commander, I got a copy of their war diary, and the commander writes, what we found was a, was a musical comedy situation. That's so how he describes it. Because both sides were terrified of each other, and they both wanted to get off the island as quickly as possible, and they were both delighted the Canadians had arrived. So it was a kind of a comic element in the final days. So the last fighting in Europe, well, actually, has to be careful here, because I know there was U Ukrainian uh, nationalists fighting at the Red Army in Ukraine, but among the last fight, it went on till the end, after the end of the Second World War in Europe. There was, there was still... Yes, absolutely. It, the well, Wehrmacht was still in action. The Wehrmacht was still just disciplined force. Even at the end of the war, the idea they all marched under their commanders back to Germany, you know, in, in formation, they were still a disciplined army. The army, it wasn't like the First World War. They, they didn't break down as an army. So when people say, my publisher has written accidentally, this was the final battle of the Second World War, I said, don't, don't say it was the final battle of the Second World War, because my father was fighting in the Philippines at the same time. So this is not the final battle, this is the final battle of the Second World War in Europe, maybe mm. arguably in Western Europe. Yeah. But you're quite as surprised when the Canadians arrived and found that the war had not ended there. They just come from celebrations in Amsterdam. 
But yeah, they're, yeah, they're probably a bit groggy and there's still a war zone. Yeah, they had no idea. I mean, they weren't they weren't shot up because everyone was relieved to find them. But they part of what they were doing was they helped um, unearth the mass graves, which was quite a shock. Uh, how many Georgians then make it back to Georgia, poor things? Uh, over 200. And the question of make it back to Georgia is an interesting one. Most accounts of this kind of thing end with uh, the Soviet soldiers get deported back and Stalin has them all killed or sends mm. them all to the gulag. And there, there are accounts of this that actually end that way. And then all these Georgians then died. But actually, they do make it back to Georgia, and almost all of them return to their peacetime lives and, and die in their beds. I mean, they have good lives. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary ending to the story. So do we think that Stalin was taken with their uprising? And did he... well, that's a complicated question. Stalin, of course, gave orders that no one was ever to surrender. You see, he used to say there were no Soviet POWs, only traitors. So... They had direct orders not to surrender to the Germans, so their first act of treason was to surrender. And the second act of treason was to put on the uniforms. So they say that, as in one of the uh, interrogation records, one of the Georgians said, the Germans lined us up in a POW camp, made us stand there and said, all enemies of the Reich, step forward. So no one stepped forward, they needed to be shot. And they said, congratulations, your induction ceremony is complete. You're now members of the German army. So they expected that they would be punished in the Soviet Union. It's one of the reasons why they did this rebellion, to kind of show Stalin that actually were loyal Soviet citizens. But we know that doesn't work because Vlasov and his army did the same thing in Prague. In the final days of the war, launched this rebellion, fought against the SS, quite bravely liberated Prague, and they were turned over to the Red Army, and Vlasov was hanged for his treason. So the question of why the Georgians were treated so well is complicated. Part of it is the Canadian general in charge, Fulks, as well as Eisenhower, each one wrote letters to the Soviets, which we have copies of, saying these guys are great, these Georgians, they're allies, they fought the Germans, you know, we praise them, be nice to them. And in the immediate post-war period, they made, that had some influence, also the role of the Dutch Communist Party. The Dutch Communist Party, who had worked with these Georgians, uh, insisted they were patriots and pro-Soviet and they were wonderful communists and they should be treated as heroes and so on in the Soviet Union. The Dutch communists had their own reasons for saying that. They had their own stuff to cover up and their own th things that embarrassed them. So these guys were, all, were treated in many cases as heroes and over time, increasingly as heroes. And by the 60s, the Soviets made a big feature film about them. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's a well-known story if you go to the former Soviet Union now. It, 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 this is why I've been told, never say it's an unknown battle. It's very well known in Georgia. And it's very well known in the Netherlands. But the, the Georgians know is a myth. They know the Soviet myth that Stalin had, had engineered, that these were, the myth was these were POWs, who were unarmed, who at the last moment in active heroism rebelled against the Germans and grabbed their arms somehow. And this is how it's depicted in this terrible film, which no one should ever see. But it's an awful film, and it shows it in that way, and this is completely untrue. And, and the myth was created by the Dutch communists, by the Georgians themselves, to, to, explain, to explain away their stuff. But also, the Soviets uh, at that time were trying to bring Georgian exiles home. There was a large Georgian exile community in Europe to convince them it was safe to come back to Georgia, that all was forgiven. And the commander of the Georgian Legion, who was not on Tessa, but who was one, you know, the guy who founded and led the Georgian Legion for a while, was actually kidnapped by the KGB in 1954 in West Germany. He was working for Adenauer as a military advisor, whisked off back to Georgia, where everyone thought he'd be tried and executed, and set free. And lived as, I think, as a lawyer in Tbilisi until he died. It's very weird behavior. Because if you, weren't, if you weren't in this particular unit, chances are you were not going to survive your trip back to the Soviet Union. Stalin was merciless and unforgiving. Soviet citizens, Soviet soldiers who surrendered to the Germans, but did nothing else, just surrendered or were captured, were quite often punished. This was quite unusual. These, these Georgians were not punished. And the people of Tessel today, 
even though actually if they just if the Georgians had just gone quietly, there probably would have been no fighting until the end of the war. Are they are they proud of do they mind that their property was destroyed and many of them were killed or Oh yes. That that's an understatement. I mean there's a there's been documentaries made about this and you watch the interviewees and most of them are quite hostile looking back oh, at right. George's <laughs> It's like they saved their own necks, they only think of themselves. If they just shut up, you know, and waited till the end of the war, nothing would have happened, which is true. But um, it's not like the Georgians went around slaughtering. The Georgians themselves became victims, right? The vast majority of them died on mm. Dessau. So it wasn't an act of real heroism, but from the point of view of many of the Dutch, uh, too bad they did it. And from the point of view of the Germans, the Georgians were completely wrong. The Major Breitner survived the war and lived for decades afterwards, gave interviews, wrote about it, and talked about he was like the best commander ever. He says, I would take my Georgians with me when I would go back to my family home. They would spend Christmas with my family. I was such a nice guy to them. No idea what I did wrong. You know, like, yeah. I mean, it was like, what are you talking about? You were the commander of a you know, captured Soviet pilot. What did you think, they, that they liked you? But that's, he, he thought that. He thought that. They, of course, all the um, survivors, whipped up this idea that they were always, always loyal communists, that they adored Stalin, thought of nothing else but Stalin all the time. And one of the most famous survivors, a guy named Artemidze, who they said was the political commissar of the rebellion. Artemidze would always say, my, um, my uniform was Hitler's, but my heart was with Stalin. Yeah. He, had his, he has a little house, and his little museum there, in his house in Georgia, and he has these headlines saying that, in pictures of Soviet flags and pictures of Stalin. And they made this whole mythology around themselves. That, and he, had, he looked like Stalin, Artemisia, his Stalin mustache, and people called him Little Stalin. And this was their, they created the myth. What's weird about the myth is, is that, I get why the Soviets did it. It survived Soviet times. In Georgia today, this is still believed. And when President Saakashvili visited Tessel in I think, 2005, he repeated the same Soviet story. Even though they knew everything the Soviets had ever told them about history was untrue. They figured this out. Stalin wasn't a good guy. Beria was not a good person. Communism was not a success. They learned all that and figured out this story they believed. And to this day, this is how most Georgians see it. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for sharing it with us. What's it called? Night of the Bayonets. Yeah. Grim. Yeah, well, it's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dad. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, everyone. Massive favour to us if you could go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Give it a rating, five stars, obviously, uh, and then leave a glowing review. That'd be great. My mum is getting overwhelmed with the amount of different email accounts she set up to leave good reviews for me. So you're going to have to do some of the heavy lifting. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.